Welcome to another edition of the Populous Papers, where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. major city on earth, bisected by a mountain range. It's the end of the line on westward expansion. Nowhere else is as diverse in people nor in geography. 200 different languages are spoken here, and that's just the official ones. It's the largest American county in terms of population, and we're the second largest in terms of landmass. San Bernardino's number one. You can go snowboarding and surfing in the same day, also, skateboards were invented here, apparently for surfers during their downtime. And there's no other city whose name has so many variations. You can call her... El pueblo de Nuestra Señora la Reina de Los Ángeles de la Porciúncula. Or shave off 97% of those syllables and just say L.A. It's actually written six different ways between the official plaques and historic documents. Then, there's the barrage of annoying nicknames, the most accurate one probably being Land of Fruits, Nuts, and Flakes. Los Angeles built the world's very first freeway, and the first real suburbia, the San Fernando Valley, whose layout led to the creation of what they call conservative Judaism in the 1950s. It's kind of like halfway between Orthodox and Reform, and basically just means that you're allowed to drive on Shabbat. Since the valley is so damn sprawling, practically no one could walk to temple. It's the land of compromise. There's more first peoples here than anywhere else. That, and our full name being something like the place of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels, lend a tinge of the sacred over this otherwise sinful city. And you might think that the film industry came to L.A. because of the weather, but it turns out movie makers were trying to get as far away from Thomas Edison as they could, because the bastard had a monopoly on all the patents for the film equipment, and they were sick and tired of getting ripped off. Another common misnomer is that we're a desert. Riverside, San Bernardino, and the Antelope Valley are mostly desert, but L.A. itself is technically Mediterranean. And speaking of the Antelope Valley... Turns out Aldous Huxley had a place in Pearl Blossom Ranch. He may have written Brave New World in Italy, but it was here, in the newest of New Worlds, boo-boo, where he got into mescaline and mysticism, where he wrote The Doors of Perception and The Devils. In fact, it was L.A.'s reputation for drugs and magic that made him want to move out here in the first place. And when Huxley died, it was on the exact same day as JFK. His wife shot him up with a hundred milligrams of LSD. Twice. Hey, could be fun. The L.A.-San Francisco relationship is pretty interesting. Apparently they really hate us up there. <laughs> now, when you think of a city with insanely steep hills, it's usually SF that comes to mind. But it's actually L.A. that has the steepest drivable street in all of California. In fact, four out of the ten steepest streets in the United States are in L.A. Eldred, 28th, Baxter, and Fargo. 
and all four of them are steeper than the only two San Francisco streets to even make the list. The flower power movement may have started in San Francisco with the Grateful Dead and the airplane, but it died in L.A. with Charles Manson and Tex Watson. Apparently David Crosby had a real gift for playing both sides and really brought together the commercial interests of L.A. with the more far-out milieu of San Fran. And if you want to learn some spooky shit about the Manson murders, read Paul Krasner's article, Charlie Manson's Image. Apparently, there was some homemade porn in Roman Polanski's loft that was seized by the LAPD, and according to the renowned P.I. Hal Lipset, certain officers were selling copies for a quarter of a million dollars each. Yul Brenner, Peter Sellers, and Warren Beatty were among those offering up reward money. And former Deputy Sheriff Preston Gullery even admitted his orders were not to arrest Charles Manson or any of his followers leading up to the raid at Spawn Ranch, even though Charlie had illegal drugs and weapons that he was using out in the open for weeks. He was screwing minors, all in clear violation of his parole, and the cops were told to stand down. Word had it that they were expecting the Manson family to attack the Black Panthers. That makes the LAPD collaborators in a mass killing spree. There's also evidence that Manson's so-called family was put together as a hit squad for mob contacts that Charlie made while in prison. There's a certain sense of phobophilia here, the love of being scared. Brad Easton Ellis admits to being attracted to the darkness of L.A., Kate Braverman captured the bohemian squalor perfectly with her novel Lithium from Medea. Of course, Raymond Chandler did very well using the city's sinister echoes and shady figures as muses. Ayn Rand actually wrote Atlas Shrugged while living in the valley, and Tarzana naturally takes its name from the Edgar Rice Burroughs character. There's fifth-generation Californian Joan Didion, who not only mastered road trips and author photos, but she also managed to epitomize our laid-back attitude when she ended Play It As It Lays with the two words, Why not? A teenage Ray Bradbury was dazzled with tales of magic and rockets and exploring other worlds when he met fellow Angelino Jack Parsons. This was at a meeting of the L.A. Science Fiction League back in 1938. Bradbury opened up new worlds with his writing and with his playhouse, the Pandemonium Theater Company, which he ran for several years. But Jack Parsons, he was something else. He went on to become a ceremonial sex magician, a rocket scientist, and an alleged Israeli spy. Caltech produced a brilliant play about him called Pasadena Babylon. Parsons was one of the founders of Aerojet and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but he'd been had and probably by the shittiest writer that I've brought up so far, L. Ron Hubbard. Even Aleister Crowley sent a letter to Jack Parsons warning him to watch out for this Ron guy. And I've still got OTO people bugging me about when I'm going to help them get their boat back. But perhaps I've misjudged the Scientologists. I mean, what other religion has been gracious enough to build a celebrity center for their community? Parsons was such a character. He'd greet people at his front door while wearing a live snake around his neck. And he drove some fucked up piece of shit Pontiac to his job at JPL every day. But best of all, 
Jack would invoke Pan before every rocket test. And I would submit to you that it was his work as a magician in particular, which brought us the most innovative rocketry. Jack was an explorer of other worlds, and he really wanted to go to the moon ever since he was a little kid. And he knew it was possible, even way back when very few people took that kind of thing seriously. Jack Parsons died in a chemical explosion when he was only 37. However, he did make it to the moon after all. In 1972, the International Astronomical Union named a crater on the moon after him. Another radical visionary and adventurer, Amelia Earhart, worked at the Pacific Bell right here in North Hollywood. There's a beautiful statue of her in front of the library. She was hardcore and even opened her own flight school out of the Burbank airport. Interesting fact about Amelia, she didn't like coffee or tea, so when she needed to stay alert on long flights, she used a special batch of smelling salts. Gotta get some of that stuff. So let's talk about Boyle Heights, one of the first truly multicultural neighborhoods. George Takei, Herb Alpert, Lou Adler, and Mickey Cohen all grew up there as did the L.A. politician with the most buildings named after him, Edward Roybal, who, in 1949, became the first Latino city councilman in nearly seven decades. Roybal was a hero in the crackdown against police brutality. He stood up for seniors, housing rights, and later on in life as a congressman, AIDS research. Roybal learned a lot from Saul Alinsky, and the two of them formed a powerful Jewish-Latino coalition around the core working-class issues of the day. Conservatives despised Alinsky because he was great at keeping the pressure on and getting shit done, like getting Roybal elected. However, Saul also rallied against centralized power and federal control of education. So fans of small government, this is your guy. It even ties in with how Brooklyn Avenue became Cesar Chavez Avenue and how the traditional Day of the Dead became more of an arts celebration when the brilliant Franciscan nun, Sister Karen, who was the co-founder of Self-Help Graphics and a skilled artist herself, figured out that combining the holiday with a community arts festival could really help keep the cops at bay. I think it worked. And now... You got 170 murals in East L.A. There's also a Los Angeles in Chile, so you could move to that L.A. if you're hardcore. I mean, how cool would that be? Just tell everyone, hey, I'm just going to go restart my life in L.A. No big deal. But why would you want to leave? We got so much cool shit out here like the California Institute of Abnormal Arts, a.k.a. CIA Club in North Hollywood. Something like a cross between a Carney Museum and a vaudeville speakeasy. It's run by maximalist artist and collector Carl Crew, who used to be a mortician and played Jeffrey Dahmer in the 93 film before becoming the Barnum of Burbank Boulevard. There's Candy Cane Lane in Woodland Hills, which goes all the way back to 1951, and it never gets old. Even if you hate Christmas, the displays are a trip. You got Bottle Village, which is technically Ventura County, but I still consider Grandma Prisby to be a quintessential Angelino. She was 60 when she started mixing her own cement by hand, 
and building the village out of a bunch of junk from the local dump. Uh, she would make these trips back and forth in a Studebaker pickup that had no muffler, no horn, no emergency brake, a broken back window, no taillights, plus she didn't even have a driver's license. And with all this fucking garbage in the back of her truck, she runs a red light right in front of a cop one night, and somehow she didn't even get a ticket. She claimed it was just too much stuff for him to write down in that little book of his. <laughs> There's the House of Prayer for All Peoples, which is in between two interesting intersections, Grand Temple and Main Sunset. Definite Illuminati. And the real Sunset Strip is in Echo Park, you know. And there's a reason the Rolling Stones kicked off their 60th anniversary tour with a secret show at the Echoplex. I believe Mick's exact words were, Echo Park, a neighborhood that's always up and coming. And one more honorable mention, Walt Disney. After he moved the studios from Hyperion to Burbank, he wanted to build a park for his staff and their families. Of course, it became way too big for Burbank. So now, people from all over flock to Anaheim every year, like Muslims making the trek to Mecca. And some of his followers believe that he could come back. I mean, Walt was the first person rumored to have undergone cryogenics. Are you anxiously awaiting the return of the mythical mastermind and possible savior of the Disney cult? You know, that park might even rival the Vatican as far as generating conspiracy theories, holding esoteric power, and even secret passageways. A friend of mine had to spend a little bit of time in Disney jail one time, before I had even met him, but uh, he claimed they've got their own way of punishing you. You're like locked in a cell and all you can look at is this giant image of Mickey crying. You made Mickey cry. Can you believe that? Orange County actually used to be the lower third of L.A. County. Now there's a secession that made sense. Also, kind of weird that the only two Orange County amusement parks to have stood the test of time were both owned by guys named Walter. Not Sperry Farm being the other, of course. A few movies you gotta see if you really want to know what's up with L.A. First of all, Speed, which is still the greatest commercial for public transportation the Earth has ever known. Act one was the elevator, then they're on the bus, and the third act was the red line. Remember when the subway blasts through the road? That's my train! Our public transit rules, and it's up to 93 stations right now. I love it. Uh, falling down. You know, I'm still kind of scared of that military supply store in Silver Lake because of that movie. <laughs> it's too intense. What We Do is Secret, Boogie Nights, They Live, Men's Society, and Demolition Man. Although that's San Angeles, because in the future, L.A. and San Diego will merge into one county. One more thing. It is illegal to lick a toad in the City of Angels the hell was going on when they passed that law? Bunch of toad heads has been going around town getting fucked up on toad secretions? Sick. Alright, enough of the rant. Let's take a little musical break, courtesy of Brittany Mack. And when we come back, Kim Cooper will share some of her fascinating original research into the world's most unique city. Thank you. 
Kim Cooper and her husband Richard Shave lead curious souls on Esoteric's offbeat bus tours into the secret heart of Los Angeles and produce the now monthly award-winning podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, which has been described as Ewell Hauser on steroids. Her publications include The Raymond Chandler Map of Los Angeles, Haunts and Havens of Charles Bukowski, How to Find Old Los Angeles, Lost in the Grooves, and Bubblegum Music is the Naked Truth, the dark history of prepubescent pop from the Banana Splits to Britney Spears. Kim, I really appreciate you being with us today. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you today. Thank you. So how long have you been doing Esoteric now? Well, I, I like to tell people who are not native Angelinos, if they tell me they've been here 10 years, I'm like, okay, that's it, you're a native? So I have been doing Esoteric long enough for this bus company to be a native. Ah. <laughs> we started in 2007 and casually in 2005. I like it. And what gave you the idea for it? It actually came out of a true crime blog that I launched in the early blogging era, uh, March of 2005. I'd been researching a book about 40s crime in L.A. And Richard, my husband, then my my beau, was writing blogging engines at Cal State L.A. and at the in the computer department, and he said, why don't you just start blogging your research? You're finding all these great cases. <laughs> that turned out to be a, a really interesting piece of advice because it ruined my book, <laughs> but it created <laughs> this whole new way of um, publishing on a really instant basis and um, brought to us a lot of people who were asking for an opportunity to get on some sort of conveyance and go to these crime scenes, and that's how the crime bus was born. Interesting. So how old were you when you first discovered your love for criminology? So I remember reading Helter Skelter, which is so many people's gateway drug into this. As a young preteen, I don't remember exactly when I read it, but but I, I know I was kind of getting interested in the counterculture when I was about 11. And then from, from there, I jumped off and I discovered there was this whole world of just weird behavior that in many cases was criminal. So, you know, reading, a, my mother had a collection of old Rolling Stones. You would find some interesting narratives about the bad guys in there. And, I, you know, I jumped off from that. But it wasn't always easy to research this. I mean, we're in a brave new world now where almost everything that you would want to find, if it hasn't been digitized, you can find a digital clue. You know, back in those days, it was about running around in libraries and finding the things they were throwing out in the book sale. Right. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, did you say that there's a term for what happens when two people meet and kind of go crazy together? Folie adieu. Oh. I'm sure my French is really bad, but uh, the, the madness of two. And, you know, a great example of that is the what's known as the Hillside Strangler murders, mm-hmm. although there were actually two people involved, uh, these cousins, Buono and Bianchi. I don't think either one of them, you know, they, they, I think either one of them was capable of murder on their own, but they egged each other on, and they also facilitated these kidnap murders of young women around Los Angeles by automobile. 
Um, I don't think that ever would have happened had they not come together at that particular moment. And unfortunately, over the course of just a few months, about a dozen young women were killed because of it. Yikes. And yeah, if, big yikes. But if people want to know more about that story, they should go on your Echo Park Book of the Dead tour, right? Yeah, that is one of the more recent crimes. I, you know, I really like to talk about old crimes, mm. not just because you, know, it, you never want, you know, someone who was immediately impacted by a relatively recent crime to get on your bus. I've, I've met plenty of people who are still traumatized by things that happened 40, 50 years ago. Wow. But, you know, also it's kind of our specialty. But it's such an interesting case. And I realized when I wrote the Echo Park tour that we could go to this newly created park off Riverside and see one of the crime scenes, one of the body dump sites. And it's such a beautiful place. Right. And it's just it's just a neat place to tell this story and you can look out at all the hills because this was a an extremely topographic crime spree. It was mm-hmm. it was basically Glendale to the Hollywood area and um the hills were extremely important. So you could see them all from where we're standing and, and kind of put it into context. Gotcha. So you have four official categories of tours, correct? Yeah, loosely, although you know, we're changing things a bit now. I mean, we, we started out, our vision was we start with the true crime tours. That was the 1947 project. And then when we became esoteric, we'd already been having people contact us and ask about a Raymond Chandler tour was something that the public wanted. Mm. So Richard said, I'm going to write that Chandler tour. I've been giving it, you know, informally since I was a, a young person anyway. Everyone loves Raymond Chandler locations. And then we added Bukowski and James M. Kane, what's known as the Birth of Noir tour. Then we have a series, they're architecture tours, but they're really about the development of Southern California as a creative engine, so those are called California culture. Mm-hmm. And then we had rock and roll tours, which has become a little more nebulous. At this point, the only musical tour we do, not purely a rock and roll tour, is the once-a-year Tom Waits bus adventure with my longtime writing collaborator, David Smay, hosting. Uh-huh. And we've started doing these special tours with writers, like... Um, you know, we now have a tour just about the SLA shootout, which with, with Brad Schreiber, we've done that a couple of times. It's really fun to get a writer who's very, very passionate about his research to take us to these locations and turn it into an esoteric day out. Sure. Get the knowledge firsthand. Yeah, and the Q&As are amazing, you know. People, that's a crime that anyone who was in L.A. at the time really felt impacted by it and in some cases was personally touched by it. So you learn so much from the people who get on the bus. Mm-hmm. We do. Yeah. Well, I actually worked as a private investigator for a couple of years. And I think you did? that I did. Yeah, I started as a court researcher. And mm-hmm. one thing kind of led to another. Um, I mean, fascinating line of work. I, I kind of lost my mind a couple of times. Uh, talking Were about... you sitting on cars outside people's houses at night, noting <laughs> when when people went inside and when they left? Um, we'll save that for another episode. But okay. um, I mean, I, I can definitely identify with that sense of um, you know needing to get to the bottom of things. And um... but you never do. No, I mean it's it's only more questions, more mysteries right. are unlocked, and and but that's part of the beauty of it. Just it's not about the destination it's about the journey yeah and everybody has their own way of telling the story i mean the, the, patricia hurst has never really fully told her story many different people have come forward and tried to tell what happened to her a lot of the people who were there are dead hmm. so we do the best we can to understand speaking of quests into the unknown i gotta say you kind of remind me of indiana jones it's like you're guiding 
the, the curious on this uncanny expedition. And I did want to grow up to be an archaeologist, but it's not much of a career path to be <laughs> So, um, is there anyone you consider to have been kind of the real-life inspiration for the Jones character? Well, it's not just me. I mean, this, this is commonly understood that this completely daffy individual, um, Lieutenant Colonel Percival Harrison Fawcett, <laughs> born 1867, died 1925, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> The Amazonian explorer is is the figure who uh, Jones as a character was based on. He's he's a tragic soul. I mean, there's this book that came out uh, David Graham a few years ago, The Lost City of Zed, and it's been it turned into a film. But it's about how this washed up explorer who'd been funded for many years by various exploration groups went off on his last great search, and he was looking for a city of gold. And, and monkey men, long-haired monkey men, and two-nosed dogs and other strange things. And he vanished. It's, it's actually really very sad. A lot of people went out looking for him and failed to find him, but his name survives and his mystery. Wow. Um, and we found an Echo Park connection, so I'm able to talk about him on Echo Park Book of the Dead, which I appreciate. <laughs> right, right. And there was there a number two guy? I feel like Richard disagreed at one point during that tour and said there was someone else that he could have been based on. Oh, yeah, you know, we disagree on the bus all the time, but I'm not, you know. <laughs> Richard's entitled to his opinion. I, some people hate our bickering. I, I enjoy it. I try to keep it friendly. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but we care a lot. I think that's what it's about. Okay, so uh, any other quintessential Angelinos you feel like we should know about? Well, you know, actually, you... You, you, you gave me the, the benefit of seeing that question ahead of time, and I thought about it a little, and I thought the person I want to tell you about is actually not someone famous. It's someone who's come to us through this work that we do hmm. and who I think is really special and who's been able to find a voice, and that's Gordon Patterson. Um, Gordon grew up on Old Bunker Hill. His family owned the last two great mansions that ended up getting... Um, removed by the city as part of the big redevelopment project in the late 60s, the castle and the salt box. And when I started, um, I think, her fourth blog out of the 1947 project, we decided to focus on the lost neighborhood of Bunker Hill, on BunkerHill.org. And very, very soon after, Gordon, who's a, a very highly skilled periodontist and educator and great lover of Bunker Hill, found the blog and commented on a post about his family's homes, and we became friends with him. And this led to him having a whole second life where he gets up and does a slideshow that we've helped present about Old Bunker Hill and what life was like and, and sort of contradicts the perceived reality of this being a horrible slum neighborhood that needed to be destroyed for the benefit of its residents. <laughs> and, and this is a man who, as a little child, felt perfectly safe and, and comforted among the old people who lived in these single-room occupancy hotels and these old, beautiful mansions that have been converted to rooming houses. And he's probably the last person alive who can speak to it, and it's, it's powerful. And to me, he is a great Angelino and someone who I'm so glad we've helped give a voice to because he's, he's just transformed our understanding of a really important lost part of the city. Yeah, I did go on uh, that tour of the... Um... Is it Angel's Flight Railway? Yeah. Yeah, I believe he was there for that one. That was really incredible. Yeah, 
he, he considers, he's so sweet. He says, you know, that seat at the back of Angel's Flight, that is my seat. It's been my seat since, you know, 1947 when I wrote it in my mother's tummy, but I'll let you ride. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's effective ownership. That's where people, you know, and he doesn't own Angel's Flight, but he feels so strongly about it. He can be an advocate for it. Um, and it's very powerful. It's incredible. You know, um, we get so glossed over as if we don't have a unique history in this town. Oh. But, um, yeah, thank goodness it's it, you're helping bring a lot of these stories to light. Hey, is it true that's the nation's smallest incorporated rail line? Oh, incorporated. That's an interesting question. Uh, there is a smaller railway, I think, in Pittsburgh. But all of these little tiny conveyances argue about who is the smallest. And when you use the word railway, officially it's an elevator. Ah. So, yeah. Let's just say it's our smallest uh, Edwardian-era railway anywhere close. And uh, I recommend taking a ride because the mayor actually got involved and helped get it running again with a little bit of prodding from a whole lot of people who signed our petition. All right. Great job. Um, That was fun. We had some good advice on, on knowing what to ask for. Excellent. So we've heard about a great Angelino. Um, any uh, stories about maybe one or of the worst? Didn't uh, one of like Edward Hickman's relatives reach out to you at one point? That was very early, and that was a really moving experience. Edward Hickman is known as the Fox. He was um, a young, I believe, schizophrenic man who kidnapped a little girl and um, little Miriam Parker and took her. Uh, hostage for several days and ended up making a, a ransom demand of her dad. He got the money, but he was visited by someone named Providence, uh, this figure who used to appear to him out of his imagination, and Providence told him to kill the child, so he did, and then he delivered this body in the form of a sort of altered doll to her father and created this absolutely terrifying manhunt where everyone was looking for the fiend and he went on the run so we, we talk about it on, now it's on the Echo Park tour. It's been on different tours over the years because there are different locations that figure into the crime. And someone bought a ticket on the bus, and his email address had Hickman's name in it. And I thought, oh, is this a, someone who's really interested in the case? So I asked, and he said, no, I'm his grandnephew. Wow. And I said, well, I'm so, you know, glad that you're joining us and if there's anything special i can help you with or you want to talk beforehand and he said well no thank you Uh, you know i look forward to coming and we'll see what happens and he he arrived and he brought a scrapbook that he had been collecting things i'd never seen before newspaper clippings about the case originals and he said he learned early on that he was named after someone in the family who had caused a lot of trauma and he had to piece the story together himself because no one was going to talk to him about it but that um, Edward Hickman had been much loved in his family, and no one had really understood what happened when he went away to California and ended up getting executed, I think, before the age of 20. So I, I really got a strong sense there of the ripples and the pain that are still felt by family members, unconnected individuals, people who weren't even born, based on things that happened in these terrible criminal incidents. And um, Hickman's grandnephew actually shared some of his feelings and some of his research at, at the scene of the murder. It was something very, very special that no, nobody who got on that bus knew they were going to get, and I, I doubt any of them ever forgot it. 
talk about firsthand stories. Yeah, that's, and cathartic, I hope, you know? That's incredible. Um, do you remember there being a peculiar odor, by chance, when you met him? No, he did not have the odor, but some people did say that Hickman, the senior, had a strange smell about him, and that is sometimes associated with schizophrenia, actual chemical changes in the body. We're never going to know what happened to him, why he did what he did, because he was forced to confess when he was captured up in Bend, Oregon. The confession was prepared by the time he got off the train with the L.A. detectives who went up to get him, and he looked rather the worst for wear. And then he was killed not long after. But his attorney, uh, Richard Cantillon, used one of the very first not guilty by reason of insanity defenses and wrote a book that remained unpublished until his own death called In Defense of the Fox, which is quite fascinating. And I think uh, Cantillon knew him as well as anyone and really did believe that something was organically wrong with his reasoning that resulted in this terrible thing. Incredible. It's almost like nature is kind of letting people around him know, like, hey, <laughs> something is yeah. up. Yeah, because he was a handsome guy. I think it's part of the reason that the the um, woman at the at the school office allowed him to take this unrelated child when his, his story about her father being injured was a little weird, because he asked for a child who was a twin. He said, I, you know, I want the Parker girl, and, and the woman in the office said, oh, which one? And he said, the little one. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even. But know he was name. very presentable. <laughs> wow. You know, and and no one was thinking. Yeah, people should have been. I mean, it's not like child child murder was unknown at the time, but I think it was a more innocent era. Definitely. Well, and didn't he want the ransom money so he could join Amy Temple's uh, Amy Temple McPherson's church? No, no, he wanted to go to Divinity School, uh... and the the ransom. I think it was twenty five hundred dollars. It was exactly enough for Divinity School. <laughs> the irony. And uh, it, didn't he end up being Ayn Rand's hero? Yes. Yeah, so when Rand arrived in America, she, as so many immigrants do, um, one of the ways that she, that she learned colloquial American speech was reading the newspapers, and she found him a fascinating character. So in some early diaries, she speaks about his the things he was saying you know, in the courtroom because he was an extremely egotistical character. She said, uh, he says, I'm like the state. What's good for me is right. This is, this is such a powerful statement. Hmm. Yeah. Well, kind of tells you everything you need to know about objectivism right there. <laughs> oh, we could talk about that for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it that is... never goes well, does it? No. So I feel like L.A., San Fran, and Vegas kind of like to compete with each other for who gets to be the wickedest city in the West. Have any uh, ideas as to why this was such a sort of uh, I don't know haven for like criminals? I mean, was it that I know they had some problems building that rail line for the longest time over to Hatchby? So like only uh, basically you had to be hardcore to even get out here in the first place. Do you think that had something to do with you know why it was sort of a haven for gangsters and murderers seemed attracted to it for so long? Well, boy, I mean, there's so many reasons that this has been a lawless place. And, and it's nothing new. I mean, if you, if you look at the earliest history of the growth of, of Los Angeles as a boomtown, and we're talking in the 1850s and 60s, it was incredibly violent. Uh, part of it is it was a very male city for a long time. There was a great deal of drinking and gambling and vying for the limited resources. Uh, ultimately, 
crime comes down to money or some sort of demented drive. Personally, I always find the cases where crimes are committed because someone has to commit the crime, not because they want the dollar in your pocket, much more interesting because every economic crime is essentially the same. But you, you could follow the path back from any actual criminal act and, and find a great narrative within it, because these are the moments when people cross over from accepted behavior onto the dark side, and no one knows what will happen when they do that. Maybe, well, the second time maybe they know what will happen, but the first time, every murderer is, is a new creature. It's hmm. profound. Do you have a favorite L.A. gangster story? The mob is not my favorite thing in the world. I I like the people who fight monsters more, to be honest. (laughs) My my, my great anti-gang dude is is Thomas H. James, the cop who tried to clean up L.A. before Clifford Clinton got into the gig down at 7th and Broadway. And he used to, he would help people across the street and say, now you know the chief of police is in cahoots with the mayor, who, by the way, bounced me out of his office because I wouldn't stop talking about how crooked the cops were <laughs> and when you get a chance to vote you should vote against them <laughs> wow. that was brave i mean they would have whacked him but he was he was socially and politically connected so instead they just moved him out to van eyes thinking that the commute would exhaust him no. <laughs> quit <laughs> no free was right but he didn't Nah, they eventually fired him. They caught him telling school children he was helping across the street that when they grew up to vote, they should vote against the crowd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. He's a good guy. So how about the old L.A. subway? Um, do you know anything about the lizard people? Yeah, the lizard people. <laughs> Everybody wants to see a lizard person. Personally, I'd be happy just to see a horned toad. I haven't seen one in a while. <laughs> so Fort Moore Hill, which is a hill that has changed shape a lot of times. Uh, they're building on it right now. It's got that giant school with the sort of figure nine slide down the middle of it now. Right. Yeah. So uh, this guy named G. Warren Schufelt is a, an engineer. He showed up at the Board of Supervisors in 1933, and he said, I have this map. It's a 5,000-year-old lizard-shaped map of a subterranean world created by these relatives of the Mayans. And here, as you can see, it's in the shape of a lizard because, see, they weren't lizard people like Sleestacks. They were lizard worshippers. So it's actually the city is shaped loosely like a lizard. And one end of it is in Elysian Park, and the other end, it's over where Central Library is now. And you can see they have all these tunnels and gold stores. And um, Schufelt somehow got the supervisors to agree that he could tunnel and look for this wealth and split it with them (laughs) 50-50. And maybe they saw in him someone who could actually do a little bit of the excavation work that they hoped to do anyway, because the many hills of downtown were um, interfering with car transit. But he dug for a while. He got a lot of attention in the local press. It got picked up by the AP wire service. His wacky map got circulated. I think he got about 250 feet down. Failed to find any great mineral wealth. Probably went through some really interesting archaeological or fossil remains and just tossed them out. But (laughs) people are still talking about the lizard people. Right. Well, um, see, I wonder if they were any match for the monkey men. 
though. That, oh, that the monkey man. <laughs> well, you know. But people go looking for gold. It's much safer to look in downtown Los Angeles. And, and Well, actually, take that back. Because a few, God, maybe a decade ago, there was a fella who went down to an old beer plant and was digging, looking for rare beer bottles and cans. And just a little trench, maybe five feet deep, managed to kill him because it closed uh, at his at his waist level or a little higher, and he couldn't breathe. Whoa! So you really you want to bring people with you, and you want to shore up your holes. That's my best advice to anyone going out looking for weird things, and that's a metaphor and reality. <laughs> Good to know. So, um, oh, and there were also some tales of that that. 11-mile stretch of tunnels kind of being used for smuggling, and especially during Prohibition, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not sure where the the mileage count comes from. I've, I've heard that bandied around before. There's no single map of the tunnels hmm. under, under Los Angeles. Um, the old tunnels, which, for instance, under the Barclay Hotel, there's a beautiful... L-shaped tunnel right under the sidewalk that actually bumps out from their basement, and it's one of the most intact of these Victorian-era tunnels. They were all constructed at the time that the buildings were constructed, and they existed for the very practical purpose of being a place where you could get from one building to another in downtown Los Angeles without going up to ground level, where it was very dirty and dusty. Mm. The streets weren't paved, there were horses out there, there was a lot of filth. So, for instance, if you were trying to bring clean linen to your beautiful high-class hotel, you want to do that through the tunnels. (laughs) So it's kind of metropolis in reverse. Exactly right. (laughs) Later, you know, these became extremely convenient for people who didn't want to be seen out and about. And that's where the stories come from, the, you know the criminal activities during Prohibition. And yeah, absolutely, there were underground speakeasies, but there were above-ground speakeasies, too, because the cops and the mayor, as Thomas H. James would tell you, were in on everything. <laughs> All right. So tell us about The Kept Girl. Ah, my novel. I did not think I was going to write a novel, <laughs> but I was researching this really interesting cult of angel worshippers up on Old Bunker Hill, the Great Eleven, the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, and I had, I was comfortable like with 90% of the story to talk about how they brought people into their fold, and one of the people who had given them a great deal of money in the hopes of receiving the angel's wisdom, the knowledge of the location of all mineral wealth in the earth. Uh, This person ended up uh, charging them with fraud when he lost all of his money and didn't have this knowledge. And this guy happened to be the nephew of Raymond Chandler, later detective novelist, his boss at the Dabney Oil Syndicate. Wow. So I was thinking, I I could write a book about this, but I didn't have absolutely everything I wanted. I had information about the appeal when um, the leader of the cult actually was able to get out of prison on the very reasonable grounds that you can tell people angels talk to you and they can give you money, and that's not fraud, it's religion. Uh, (laughs) But when I realized I didn't have everything I needed, I had you know two options. I could keep digging and hope I found what I wanted because I'm a completist, or I could fictionalize the story. And I started talking about this story on Richard's Raymond Chandler tour, 
and I noticed how rapt people were as I heard about it, and I thought, you know, I better get this into print before one of these many writers who gets on my bus does something with it. That was my inspiration. So with a limited amount of time, it made sense to turn it into a bit of fiction because Raymond Chandler, when he did go and become a detective novelist, he made nothing up. He was always drawing on real places, real people, real crimes. And yet this completely bizarre incident that happened right in front of his nose in the office where he worked as, a, as an oil executive, he never touches on in any of the books. <laughs> so my, my conceit is, what if he was asked, which is completely reasonable, by his boss to look into this before it made the papers? And so he and his secretary, who's brilliant and in love with him, and Thomas H. James, that cop down the block, go together to look into the secrets of the Great Eleven and their mummified priestesses and all sorts of odd shenanigans. See, the best stuff is always hidden. Oh. Well, I like stories are, are endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I'm glad I got a chance to tell that one, though, because I, I just love these characters. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, definitely intriguing. So, I mean, we talked about kind of the why criminals are attracted to this town, but why do you think there have always been so many cults out here? Does it have something to do with the solar worship, perhaps? It is true. This is a religious free-for-all. There's a wonderful new exhibition, if you, if you find yourself down San Diego way at the State University, about uh, the, the theosophical compound out at Loma Land, mm-hmm. which is the turn of the last century. This has always been a place where you could come and reinvent yourself spiritually, where the weather lent itself to casting off garments and enjoying, you're right, the sun and the, and the wind and the, and the moon and all these very primitive forms of worship. But two, you know, you, if you come here, odds are you're leaving behind the shackles of expectation. All the people who know you and the people who know your family and presume that you're going to behave as your ancestors have, they're nowhere around. And I, I think that for many Angelinos coming here, you know, to go into a place like Sister Amy Semple McPherson's Church, I know many people who went there were not Foursquare Gospel followers. Many of them weren't even Christians. But they saw a powerful woman who was passionate and believed in what she was saying and had a message of goodwill and charity and faith and good citizenship. That was inspiring. And great presentational and skills. It was theater, oh, yeah, theater. great performer. Yeah. Or you could go up to Vedanta and hear about being reincarnated and yoga and all these marvelous things that perhaps you'd read about in a, a mocking little article in some sort of mainstream journal, but it sounded interesting to you. What's yoga all about? And from there, you can become a vegetarian. <laughs> right. It is where East meets West, kind of the end of the line. Mm-hmm. You can't go any farther. Well, you can go to Catalina. <laughs> <laughs> Different department. <laughs> Um, I don't know why there aren't cults on Catalina. Obviously, the Wrigley's kept them off. Oh, interesting. Um, oh, I heard you got your hands on uh, Ray Bradbury's glasses. How'd that happen? <laughs> Actually, that was sort of sweet and sad at the same time. We uh, we have a bus tour in the California Culture Series about Boyle Heights and Monterey Park. It's a, a century of immigration stories and architecture. And that's one of the tours, you know, we've been doing it for a number of years now, but it's become more and more topical. We've, we've seen a lot of the themes that we, we talk about just become incredibly <sighs> polarizing. Mm. 
But we, we were giving the tour. We were just starting it. And um, Ray Bradbury's house in Cheviot Hills had just been purchased by Tom Maine, the architect, as they say. And Maine had decided that he was going to demolish the house and build some Tom Maine-style metal compound for his family. And a lot of people were very upset about it. People in Cheviot Hills were kind of horrified because it was architecturally inappropriate for the community. Mm. Preservationists were horrified because this is a really important literary location. Uh, Bradbury was famously a pedestrian, so that house was his locus. You know, he walked a lot around the neighborhood. Everyone knew him. It got demolished anyway. There was nothing that could be done. It was a, it was a rush job. Jeez. So Richard put an image of, of the house up on the screen and introduced the tour by talking about the notion of effective ownership, of feeling like something is yours, even though you don't own it. You maybe don't even see it very often, but it's important to you, and its survival and its health, its preservation mm-hmm. matters, and you feel personally invested. And a woman one seat behind Richard started to cry and then started to sob. And Richard was very concerned that this tour was going to be too much for her. And I leaned over and asked if she was all right. And and the gentleman who was with her let me know that this was Ramona Bradbury, Ray Bradbury's daughter. Wow. Who'd gotten on the bus in the hopes of, you know, putting her mind out of the pain of her family home being demolished unexpectedly. And here she was. (laughs) And as it happened, she found it cathartic. And we became good good friends, and she's been on a lot of tours. And when we were asked to sit on the exhibition board for this really cool new show up at the Pasadena Museum of History, which is up through the fall, um, called Dreaming the Universe, which is about the intersection of Southern California culture and science fiction with a lot of great artifacts and printed materials, we asked Ramona if she would consider loaning an object that she had actually brought uh, on a couple of tours which is her dad's glasses. And she did. And now when you walk into the show, the first thing you see in a case is this beautiful circa 1970 photo of her, her dad in the glasses in this incredible cluttered office of his. And a sculpture of the illustrated man as a pieta, which is another amazing piece, and the glasses in a case. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we made Ramona cry, but I think a lot of people are going to be really excited to see this artifact. Yeah, that is really groovy. With those lenses, new worlds opened, right? Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, as you get to know people, they tell you things and they change the way you think because her father actually had eye surgery Um, and he didn't need the glasses anymore. Wow. But he wore them. But that's right, because (laughs) everyone in the family said, we don't even know who you are. (laughs) You need your frames. So he kept the frames, but they were just clear glass at the end. Wow. It's all about the frame there. Yeah. It's, it's almost Brave like... Brave New World. Yeah. Or Elvis Costello, you know, without the glasses. Mm-hmm. It's like, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> I don't even know that face. You have eyebrows. Man. So you've done so much for the L.A. preservation community. You even saved the Peabody house. What happened with that? That was so cool. I mean, that was like instant preservation. Um, I, I read about a rent strike that was going on. Some uh, tenants were being evicted, actually, by a low-income housing developer out in Boyle Heights. They wanted to knock, knock down several apartment houses to build a new, slightly larger uh, low-income apartment building. And we were just out having having burritos in the neighborhood. And I said, oh, Richard, let's swing by and see what's going on with that protest, which was ongoing. And when we got there, 
uh, I saw that the photos that I had seen on blogs actually only showed two of three buildings. They showed these two kind of stucco dingbats, which were completely undistinguished. They didn't show the third of the units, which was a late 19th century, double-wide, uh, half-tutor, really a mansion, a double house with an upstairs, which had some really gorgeous details and was very unusual for the neighborhood. So I took a picture of it. I went home and researched it on um, um, the Herald newspaper, which has been digitized by UC Riverside. And, um, and I just made a little meme. And I said, why is a low-income housing developer demolishing this Boyle Heights mansion um, for, for a, new, a new construction? I put it on Facebook. And I put it on Facebook like around 10 o'clock at night on September 27th, 2015. And the next morning, I got an email from the head of the low-income housing developer saying, oh, I don't know where you got the idea or why all these people are calling and emailing us, but we're moving that house. <laughs> Which I, I don't think that was the plan, but but all power to them for recognizing that people felt really strongly. And they invited us in, and they showed us a little model where they had a plan. And as it turned out, directly across the street was a lot with um, metro development under it. So because of all the subway construction, they can't really build something large on that lot. So it's a great staging area. And on June 30th, 2016, we were actually there in the morning watching the house move across the street and be pivoted um, 90 degrees, so it now faces a different direction. And it's sitting in the middle of a lot up on blocks, and you can go look at it if you want to. It's been tagged a couple times. Hopefully the plan is to turn it into some sort of community or art center. They don't seem to be rushing to do that, but it's still there, and the new development's going up. And I I, I don't even feel like I did that. I took the picture, and I put it on the Internet, but the community did that. People want to be told what they can do to help. And in this case, I just said, here's a phone number, here's an email. If you feel compelled, you know, like, I think it got shared 80 times overnight. Obviously, a lot of people did feel compelled, and it made a difference. Yeah, well, it just shows they do respond to pressure. When people get involved, we can really make change happen. Absolutely, and it's just a matter of amplifying a voice. A, a lot of times, many different people will sort of chatter, and they don't know what they can do. <laughs> but coming together, you know, the lobbyists will, will show up on buses at City Hall. So why can't citizens? Oh, yeah. Um, that was one of the most powerful moments in my life, was showing up um, to a public hearing on... Um, on banking and divestment yeah. from, from Wells Fargo and uh, Wells Fargo sent out the big guns. There was, um, there was one particular moment I, I had taken the train down there and I had this little speech I had kind of written on the way down. It's like my ruffled up papers are on the table and I'm right next to this like Wells Fargo goon with a thousand dollar looking pad folio. It's just like, <laughs> every, and, but, but there was no, you know, he was just reading words. You know, I was able to right. tell stories and look, uh, you know, the, yeah. The chairman of the Budget and Finance Committee happens to be my councilman, Krikorian. So to be able to just yeah. look our representatives in the eyes and tell them our stories. My thing was the private prison industry um, and yes. Wells Fargo's stake in that. But yeah, now they're doing it. They've divested and and there's talk of a, a people's bank, a public bank. So I'm happening. sort of scared of the idea of our councilman running a public bank, but it's interesting that we're talking about it. Yeah. But you know, one thing I like to say is that Lobbyists, you know, you stop paying them and they stop showing up. But citizens who really care, you can't pay them to do something and you can't pay them to stop. And that is incredibly powerful. Wow. 
especially once, you know, once you see that you can make a difference, then you start telling your friends, hey, I got up and I went downtown and it was kind of a pain in the ass, but look what happened. And then they see that it's possible. It's infectious. It is. Preservation spreads like a bug. Yeah, I love it. Are there any other preservation efforts going on we should know about? Oh, gosh, there's so many different projects. You know, I, I, I maintain a map that you can see linked to on our, on our esoteric uh, website. But some of the things that we're doing right now is we've, we've been involved in an ongoing project with Alan Hess, the architect and historian, raising consciousness about Pereira in peril, the William Pereira compounds around Southern California, which were big, major corporate projects that in many cases are endangered right now. So that's ongoing, and, and we've actually got some really positive movement. Um, and we haven't saved anything yet, but we're still working, and people are talking about Pereira as an important architect and city planner, which is a bit new, and Alan's really happy about that. He's working on his Pereira book. We care a lot about the giant tamale on Whittier Boulevard in East L.A., which is vacant again, and I'm sorry to say uh, people are living behind it. Uh-oh. Yeah. You know, it is a plaster structure stucco it's fairly solid but i'm concerned about fire and i really hope someone will purchase the whole compound it's a giant tamale with a house in the back <laughs> it's a little overpriced they've been asking about half a million bucks but it's the world's only giant tamale <laughs> wow so someone's got to buy that baby yeah yeah so um oh and any idea what's going on with pershing square oh boy well Pershing Square is yet another project that um, our councilman in my district, uh, Jose Wizar, is he's very interested in design and city planning. And I, I really, I wish he had gone into that as a field because as a councilman, he kind of gets involved in various uh, aesthetic projects that don't always go the way he would want them or anyone would want them to go. So he's been involved in this Bringing Back Broadway initiative, which resulted in a very expensive, absolutely hideous relighting of, of the Bradbury, <laughs> among other things, and some traffic calming and a lot of uh, interference with local business. But he's got this idea that he can reinvent Pershing Square. And I, I believe in reinventing Pershing Square, too. I've got couple of thousand people have signed a petition to the city asking to go back to the John Parkinson plan. Right. Parkinson designed the park in 1910 uh, as a gift to the city. He didn't take any money. And in 1931, he redesigned it and actually adapted the plan based on usage. And it's a very simple axial plan with a fountain in the center and uh, diagonal and intersectional walkways. So people can use it for a shortcut. They can hang out on benches. They can perambulate, they can enjoy the grass and the greenery and the trees. And, you know, Wizar likes the idea of redoing the park too, but his, his way of handling it was to have an international competition with different design teams coming in with proposals that were then voted on secretly by a private development-centered group. And, you know, what they picked wasn't as popular, in my experience from talking to people, as the original plan. It's a French team, so people get to go to France and talk to them, which I'm sure is a lot of fun for the city. They don't actually have the funding. We'll see if anything comes of it. Uh, My hope is, you know, if Pershing Square does get changed, it'll get changed for the better. I don't know if this is an improvement. Hmm. But they don't have any money. In the meantime, the park is open. It's a great park. Yeah. 
even though even though it's a mess and they're cutting away at the existing Legareta Olin plan and changing it, they've covered up the fountain. Now it's the seating area. They've gotten rid of a lot of the um, shaded seating areas around the southern edge and put in children's playgrounds. Mm. They're still paying for that um, Legretta Olin plan, but they're they're ruining it at the same time. But that's what happens when the city gets involved. <laughs> yeah. You asked. <laughs> yep. Um, well, it's important to know. Um, yeah. Another thing we have in common, I think, is our love of thrifting. So, do you have uh, a favorite thrift shop in L.A., or maybe top three? You know, my L.A. thrift shops have been fading away, and and I'll tell you why. Because I've been thrifting long enough that at this point, the only kind of thrift store I really want to spend any time in are ones run by little old ladies Mm -hmm. who have no interest in collecting anything that came in the back, Hmm. because a lot of the thrift stores where young people work, anything kind of cool or valuable disappears. Uh, They're selling it out the door themselves. The big corporate thrift stores do the same thing. You know, your Goodwills and your Salvation Armies. So what you really want is a thrift store in, you know, a a fairly established older neighborhood where people have garages and and basements and attics full of stuff that they've been accumulating for decades. uh They're getting into that no-clutter period of their lives where they don't want to leave any junk for their kids and they don't really care about like these office supplies that they bought in 1954 and it got shoved to the back of the of the desk but i do (laughs) (laughs) so i hit a thrift store like that in la mesa california not long ago and had just a wonderful time and i'm ready for more road trips (laughs) yeah you never know what you're gonna find but if you know any thrift stores that sound like that in the la area give me a tip yeah Definitely. I mean, I never remember the names of them. It's just sort of right. like when I have time, it's just go in, see what you can dig up. I, I like hunting. I like, I find it really relaxing, even if I don't find anything. Yeah. Um, kind of like bookstores. There's something mm-hmm. cal- calming about it. Yeah, you're not in a hurry. You're just, you're, and you don't know what's going to happen when you take that next turn. That is a pleasure. Yeah, taking it all in. Well, um, congratulations on your podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, winning the L.A. Weekly Award for Best L.A. History Podcast. Thank you. That was kind of the last thing the L.A. Weekly did, almost, until <laughs> it used to be the L.A. Weekly. Yeah. I think we can still be proud of that. I mean, we were pretty proud of it when it happened. It's tail um, end of that, an era. Yeah, yeah. It'll come back. I have faith. And L.A.S. is going to come back. Everything's coming back. Everything old is new. I was really happy that it happened because that's really Richard's baby. He's worked so hard on going out and doing these oral history interviews. And and it's an opportunity to update people on the various preservation crises, the closely watched trains that we're obsessed with. So it, it's a nice voice to have. And it's given us a chance to go out to some really great places and just sit down with people and get their stories. You'd be amazed what they'll tell you if you put a mic in front of them. Or maybe you wouldn't be. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it is... <clears throat> It's unpredictable, but truth is certainly stranger than fiction. Um, I hope so. Yeah. So what was the genesis of your podcast? Oh, Richard was researching um, a guidebook, which is a work in progress. And he said, we need to get all these people on tape. And much as like he turned my 1940s crime book into a blog, he turned his book research into a podcast. 
But, you know, we're not weekly anymore. We've got 125 episodes at this point. Sometimes when we start a project, we just go in all wheels spinning, and <laughs> it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So getting it to be about monthly, you know, it, it's required us to rein it in and, and see. We don't talk, you know, about quite as many preservation crises, and we talk about them perhaps in a slightly more cogent fashion than we once might have but we you know it's still the same show and i i love that people discover it and kind of dig back and find people who they want to hear about because all of these stories are worth telling and some of them you know aren't even here anymore you do it long enough and it becomes history itself sure kind of a side note did you ever read jerry Stahl's book i fatty no tell me about it well um I was living in Echo Park at the time, and I'm actually from Orange County. I was born in the Valley, but I grew up in Orange County. Now, Fatty Arbuckle, I mean, not only was that kind of the beginning of just the whole Hollywood, you know, just blame blame everything on them and how that kind of led to Prohibition, but um, hearing his Nana when it was still kind of a Western town, and basically his dad would beat the crap out of him, and the theaters were the only places that kept their back doors open. It was so hot down there, and he'd sneak mm. into the theaters, and a lot of the showgirls, they thought he was so cute. I mean, he was in- insanely obese, even when he was that young. And they just thought he was adorable, though, and they started putting him on stage. I think somebody broke their arm one night, and they needed a, a replacement act, and he got, <laughs> he got out there. But um, uh, just to piggyback on the importance of telling stories, uh, fat, well, Roscoe, uh, Arbuckle's butler, uh, was this dude who... He was really Japanese, but he was posing as a Chinese guy, I think, because of the internment issues back then. But um, he just uh, insisted, hey, Roscoe, you've got to tell your whole story. So somehow scraped together enough cash to get the right kind of recording device. And it's basically just Fatty Arbuckle telling his story. And Jerry Stahl says uh, in the intro, he's like, and how I got those tapes is a whole nother book. Do you think they're real? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because They're you, real, okay. Yeah. I've never heard of those. It's, That's fascinating. It, it, well, you, you've opened my mind. I thank you. Yeah, I mean, most of the book is just transcriptions of the, the fatty recordings, and you hear all of these things about being in Echo Park and on Coronado Street, and Buster Keaton owned a house on Alvarado. Charlie Chaplin was there. You know, they called it Red Hill because it was so friendly to communists and, and radical leftists. So it's a great history. Yes, I love it. And that's why libraries are important, because people wander around and they find books they don't know it about, and recommending books to your friends is the most important thing you can possibly do. Yeah, I think so. Um, did you read that uh, that Fox News report about, like, California is one of the worst places to live? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. You know, th- these are interesting ways of judging quality of life. Exactly. But... But I'll tell you this. Now, I love California because of the free thinking. And I'm not going anywhere because I'm third generation and this is my home and I make my living telling these stories and I'm not going to give up on this place that I love. But when we take our road trips, we get the National Register and State Register listings and throw them into an open source map and figure out where to go based on you know 19th century architectural depths and and. and and number, so which is why on our most recent trip we found ourselves in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which has more National Register buildings in it than probably any small town wow. in the West. And what we find are just 
incredible opportunities, beautiful buildings, lovely places to live, nice people. And I don't understand why more people don't. You know, if you have a business and you have employees, why do you, and like I'm thinking of tech companies, why do you have to go to San Francisco and subject everyone to the pressure of the market and not being able to get a decent place to live and having to work so hard to make an income that immediately flies out the door and the cost of housing? Why not go find one of these great places and bring some progressive people and bring some business to them and enjoy the world? California is not the only place. It seems like a failure of imagination to come here if you're already successful. Why not go and take that success somewhere else? This is where young people should come and discover what's possible. Yeah, it's almost as if they need um, this sense of intensity to feel successful. They can't be somewhere mellow and be successful. No. They need the validation. All they've ever heard about is Silicon Beach or Silicon Valley. So if they're not there, well, where are they? Well, it's kind of like people I've met who moved to L.A. And just from watching Saved by the Bell, they thought you had to live. <laughs> They're like, oh, I live in Manhattan Beach. I can't believe how far away I am from everything. It's like, well, yeah, dude, L.A. is not the beach. It's it's all kinds of stuff. So, But I did notice um, that community engagement was part of their metric in that study. You know, they ignored, you know, healthcare and education. Um, of course, you know, it's biased. So I don't even know what community engagement is, do you? Well, I think that L.A., um, it does have so many people. Oh, voting? We don't vote. Well, that and people don't. That's basically the importance of, I think, companies like yours. Just showing people how much is out there and how much is still going on right at our fingertips. And it gets people more involved and more passionate about their neighborhoods. Oh, I hope so. So, yeah, thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you about it. And as you know, we always love to see you on the bus. So don't be a stranger. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will be on there again soon. Now, what's uh, what's the best way for people to keep up with you? Well, you know, we use the Internet pretty extensively. So esoteric.com is the website. And you'll find at uh, esoteric is our Twitter. We're at Esoteric Bus Adventures on the old Facebook. I'm not leaving Facebook anytime soon because we find really interesting people in the nooks and crannies of Facebook. Yeah. 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 People who are really passionate about local history are often four in the morning looking at old photos. And so if we can draw them in and hear their stories, that makes me happy. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I love keeping up with that. Is that your page, the LA History Happenings? Oh, yeah, I created L.A. History Happenings when Facebook changed their metrics and it got a little harder to share events. I realized the groups were the way to go. And so, um, actually, I I should say, if anyone's doing events that are historically-minded L.A. events, share them to that page because it ends up in the calendar. And we're trying to aggregate for there to be something to do almost every day of the week where you can go and connect with other people who love history and historic places. Perfect. That's great to know, Kim. Thanks so much. Thank you, too.